Let's remain standing for the scripture reading this morning. It's coming from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and I would invite you to read from the board with me together aloud this passage. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for these wonderful truths we have sang this morning. You truly are our Lord and King. You are our Savior. Father, you are God. Lord Jesus, you have broken the power of sin over our lives, and it is sufficient for everything we need for life and godliness. We don't need the commands of men. We don't need the traditions of of different ones. We don't need any of that. All we need is the sufficient grace that you have supplied through your death on the cross. Lord Jesus, we pray this morning that we would acknowledge you as king, that you are truly our king. You are truly our God, our God and savior. As Thomas exclaimed so many years ago, and you said, blessed are those who believe and yet have not seen. Father, we have not seen you. Lord Jesus, we have not seen you, but we pray for that blessing because we believe in you. And I pray this morning as we talk about a topic that is going to be a little difficult, a topic that is ramming its way into our society and into the church, Lord, I pray that you would give me grace. I, I, don't, I don't want this to be a knee-jerk reaction sermon, Lord. I want it to be a I want it to be a, a warning, yes, but also an encouragement that you have given us everything we need for life and godliness, that you are sufficient. And so, Father, I pray that you would open our ears this morning, that we would hear your word, that we would understand who you are and everything that you have given us in yourself. Lord, the greatest gift we have is you, and everything else pales in comparison so may we walk with you in a way that pleases and bears fruit in our lives. We don't need the things of the world, the teachings of the culture, the commandments of men. We have everything we need in Jesus Christ. And if there's one here this morning who does not know you, I pray, even though this is not necessarily evangelistic, Lord, I pray just the exposition of your truth the exposure of the false lies of the culture will bring them to yourself, that your spirit would move this morning. It is in your name we pray, amen. Amen, you may be seated. Well, you got your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Second um, Corinthians. And we are um, going to be using this as kind of a backdrop to what we're going to be talking about. And uh, let me just give you a, a, little, uh, a little history, a little personal history of, of how this kind of mini-series came about. Uh, several years ago, you guys know what a deep admiration and respect that I have 
for Dr. John MacArthur, made even more so this year with the courageous stand he took against uh, some of the arbitrary and, and tyrannical dictates of the governor there in California. Uh, you all know I have such a deep respect for him, and yet I don't always agree with him. And that's okay. Uh, I've always said, if you find someone that you agree with 100%, then stop copying them. And so, uh, so I don't always agree with him, but he said something several years ago uh, that did kind of stick with me. He said, social justice and the social justice warriors are the greatest threat that he has seen to the church in his lifetime. And to be honest with you, I thought he was just kind of giving a knee-jerk reaction. I really didn't pay much heed to that because when I thought of social justice, I was simply thinking of fairness for all, which I think is pretty much what most of us think of, isn't it? When we think of social justice and justice in particular, we think of uh, really fairness for all, biblical justice. We think of just justice. Like I, I, I like how Rob puts it. He says, you know, the Bible teaches justice. The moment you put an adjective on that, you have an agenda. And so, um, so anyway, uh, so I didn't really pay a lot of heed to that. But then fast forward a few years, I started hearing, it started becoming a trend where a lot of big name evangelicals would start uh, pronouncing at conferences and at conventions and all of this. They would start declaring themselves to be racist. And that was really odd to me. I've, I've met racists in my days. I've, I've got history of it in my family. But knowing some of these men in person, I didn't really, I didn't really see them as that. I, I didn't really know what in the world they were talking about. And then what really got my attention happened in 2019 when the Southern Baptist Convention, the national convention voted in what is now infamously referred to as Resolution 9. And Resolution 9, among other things, it introduced two words into Southern Baptist vocabulary that, quite frankly, before that time, I had never heard of. And I dare say that most of us before that time, and probably maybe most of us before today, you're never heard of them. And that is two words, critical race theory and intersectionality. And the Southern Baptist voted that these are useful analytical tools that can be used to help us understand race and racism in America. And some people have even said to help us understand the scriptures. So needless to say, that got my attention uh, this year's meeting, by the way, there will be an attempt to rescind that resolution. And by the way, in the convention's uh, defense, I don't think that 99% of the people in that room actually knew what they were voting for. I really don't think they do. I think they trusted the committee. Probably, even spell it. Probably not. And so, um, so in that vein, well, before that, let me just say this. A year ago, George Floyd happened. And when that happened, that set off a new firestorm of conversation in our country. And most of it is being driven by those two terms. So in the interest of not knowing how to spell it, Brother Tom, let me give you some definitions here. 
Critical race theory is the study of race and how racism impacts the experience of people. Now that sounds innocuous enough, does it not? And yet you will see that there's actually a whole worldview behind it. Uh, Number two, intersectionality is how each oppressed category, and we will talk about what that means, but how each oppressed category intersects in our experience. So, for example, I am a white male Christian, therefore, by definition, I am not an oppressed, I am an oppressor, right? But if you are a white woman, then you are a oppressed, Okay, you have one level of of oppression. If you are a black woman, then you have two intersections of oppression in your life. If you are a black female uh, gay person, then you have three intersections and it goes on ad finitum. And so that is what the Southern Baptists voted in as helpful analytical tools to help us reach the culture. And it set off a firestorm of controversy. Firestorm. In fact, there are a couple of churches right here in our local association that depending on the outcome of this year's convention, they are seriously considering pulling out. Seriously considering pulling out of the SBC over this. So my goal here, beloved, I've given knee-jerk reaction sermons before, and it's always happened to where as soon as I got down, I was ashamed of them. And so I don't want to do that. I want to simply give you the information, okay? So, so this morning, and really for the next three weeks, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be putting on my teacher hat as opposed to my preacher hat, just to help you understand the issues, because what I was unaware of is that there is an entire world view that is behind this. And the reason why I'm doing this series is because there have been no less than three people in this church who have asked me to address it. Now, one person says something, there could be other people talking about it or it could just be them recruiting, you know, you know how people do. Well, people are saying, what that usually means is I'm saying, Right, And so, but if two different people ask you about it, that means people really are talking about it. And if three people ask you about it, that usually means that this is something that's, ha- that's affecting a pretty good percentage of you. And so in, in response to your request, that's why I'm doing this, all right? And so I don't want it to be a knee-jerk reaction sermon, but I believe it was John Bunyan who said that a shepherd has two voices, One to comfort the sheep and the other to scare off the wolves. And so I'm putting on my scare off the wolf voice this morning and to try to help you understand the issues that are at stake here. And and honestly, Memorial Day is really the best day to start this because this is not what our veterans fought for. Amen? This is not what our veterans fought for. And so, but we need to talk about what it is. Paul's warning here is very instructive for us in the church. He gives four different warnings. I'm afraid that as the, as the serpent deceived Eve, you are being deceived by people who are leading you astray from a pure and simple devotion to Christ. 
That if you that if there is a different if there is a different Jesus preached, if there is a different spirit preached, if there is a different gospel preached, and ironically, the four uh, basic tenets of critical race theory, or simply for uh, simplicity's sake, we're just simply going to call it social justice. The four basic tenets of social justice fit all four warnings of what Paul is warning us about in this text. And so we're just going to take them one at a time, beginning this morning. Just like Eve, Satan is asking us, has God said, is his word enough? And the answer is emphatically, yes, it is. And so the four basic tenets, and we're going to use social justice as an umbrella term, we're going to examine them in light of what Paul says here. So number one, social justice is leading Christians astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And that is the number one danger. Social justice is leading Christians astray from a sincere and pure, and pure devotion to Christ. And so we need to examine how it's doing that. And basically, the first tenet of CRT is the foundation of the rest of the view. There's a whole worldview behind this. And the first tenet is this, is that everyone falls into one of two classes. Now, I hope immediately you're noticing some similarities here to something else, aren't you? What does that sound like to you? Some of you said it, Marxism. And that's exactly what this is. It is Marxism applied to race. And we're gonna see how they're doing this. But everyone falls into two classes and those two classes are basically this. Here's what it means. Number one, you are either an oppressor or you are one of the oppressed. And every group that you belong to falls into one of these two categories. So white versus black, or white versus anybody for that matter. Rich or wealthier versus poor or poverty. Men versus women. Gay versus straight. Cisgender versus transgender. And the, again, the list goes on and on and on. And each one of these groups are placed in a box to whether they are either oppressors or they are oppressed. And by the way, Christianity falls into that box. Christianity in our culture is the oppressor and everyone else is the oppressed. That's why they hate us so much. They won't use these terms always, but because they know that these are Marxist. In fact, the three founders of the Black Lives Matter organization have affirmed that they are trained Marxist. And their whole goal is to upset and overthrow the Western ideas of family and authority. And we'll talk more about that later. So what you'll hear is the dominant culture versus minorities. And this is the foundation of both CRT and it is also the foundation of intersectionality. So for example, I as a white Christian man, by definition, I'm an oppressor. I, I fit no categories, right? Uh, and I, I went through the rest of it. 
By the way, there's some related terms here that you'll hear. And I think I have them on the board, don't I? Yeah. Uh, some of the terms you'll hear is privilege. Uh, I just watched a, an entire show of Dr. Phil related to white privilege, and they spent the entire show explaining it. And you can watch it. Identity politics is another one. Colonialism, racism, social justice, equality, equity, and those two words they, they use interchangeably. And we'll, we'll, we'll tell you why that's important, et cetera. And again, the list of vocabulary just goes on and on and on. Now, and, and speaking of identities, this is where the second aspect of that comes in. And that is this, the most important aspect of your identity is what you, what group you belong to. So individualism is out the window. I myself as an individual does not exist according to them. It is all about the group that I belong to or the intersection of groups that I belong to. This, uh, this book, some of you probably saw these books up here this morning and thought, what in the world is he gonna talk about? This book is one of their Bibles. This is a book called White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. And in this book, here's what she says. I think here's what she says. <laughs> yeah, she says that we bring our racial histories with us and contrary to individualism, we represent our groups. Our identities are not unique. So in other words, you're not a person as far as they're concerned. You're a member of a group. And that's all that matters. That's all they say. As you can see here, there's a complete rejection of any kind of individualistic identity. I am the sum total of whatever group or whatever intersection of groups that I belong. And from their perspective, nothing else matters. Not your personal character, not your behavior, not anything. It doesn't matter if you are committing a criminal act. That doesn't matter. All that matters is what group you belong to. And you've seen this on the news, haven't you? You've seen this played out. You wonder, well, why is it so bad? And, and, let, me just, and let me just say this. Breonna Taylor. She was killed by police officers in her apartment. She was standing next to her boyfriend. Her boyfriend opened fire on the officers and they responded in kind and she was killed. But that doesn't matter. All that matters is what group she belonged to. So your personal character, your personal behavior doesn't matter. All that matters is your identity. All that matters is your group, according to them. And this really leads to the third aspect you need to understand, and that oppression is referred to as racism. Now, I think every one of us in this room would, would agree that racism is bad. Is that, if you think racism is bad, raise your hand. Okay? few of you didn't, so maybe we need to have another conversation. But I think <laughs> most of us in here would argue that racism is bad, right? But what you need to understand is that these people have taken a play out of the cult's playbook, and they have brought a new definition to racism. 
It's not the same thing we think of, okay? So racism is the original sin in this view. It is the default position. Uh, This guy says that racism is ordinary. It is not aberrational. It is assumed. It is the default position of any culture. Every act is interpreted as an evidence of systemic racism. And if you argue against that, that just proves that you are a racist. You see how they're setting up a a no-win situation here? That's exactly what they're doing. So we need to define racism. When racism is being discussed in the news or by these people, they're not talking about individual acts of someone who withholds a service or someone withholds something from someone based on their race or dislikes them simply and solely because of their race. We would all agree that that is sin. But that is not what they are talking about. What they are talking about is that they are applying a new definition And they're saying that it is a racist policy. It is the law and legal institutions that are inherently racist and designed to benefit Christian white people in our country and disadvantage everyone else. So what they've done is they've taken it out of the hearts of men. They have have removed racism out of our hearts and they've placed it in the institution. They've placed it in the society. They've made it systemic. They've made it uh, institutional and a structure. In fact, Robin DiAngelo says again, and I think I have this one on the board. She defines racism as a system that functions independently from the intention. In other words, it doesn't matter if your intentions are racist or not. If you're white, you're a racist. We can actually have racism without racist. It's silly, but that's exactly what they're talking about. And beloved, when we say, when most of us here in this room say racism and our kids say the word racism, we are talking about two different things. And that's why we keep talking around in circles This stuff is all in the schools. It's being taught in the college educations. It's trickling down into our public schools. Every time you hear a newscaster talk about racism, this is what they're talking about. And it's trickling into our churches at an alarming speed. In fact, it's not trickling. It is ramming into the church. Ramming into the church. Just to give an example, in one of the more bizarre arguments I read, Kendi, Abram Kendi, which is this book, he argues that global warming is a racist phenomenon. I didn't know global warming cared about race, and we can talk all day about the merits of global warming, but he's calling it a racist problem. Global warming is a racist problem. Doesn't that sound ridiculous? But they can say that because they've redefined the term. D'Angelo says that the individualistic idea of racism, in other words, what you and I think of as racism, it is misinformed, and that's why we can't have an honest conversation about racism in our country. No, maybe the reason why is because you're pulling a fast one. Maybe that's the reason, because you've changed the definition and you expect everyone else to jump on board, maybe that's why we're having such a hard time having a conversation. You think? 
So what does all this mean? Beloved, it means, and let me look around, make sure. Okay. It means that according to them, every single person in this room is a racist. You were born that way. You will die that way. And there's nothing you can do to change it. You can become enlightened to it, which is what they refer to as woke. You ever hear that term? Woke. You can become woke, but you can't change it. You're white, you're a racist. That's all there is to it. It's everywhere. It is in our schools. It is in our colleges. It's in entertainment. All of you know that I'm a Law & Order fan, right? Literally every episode this, this year has been about that. Literally every episode they've been talking about it. And like the Pharisee of Jesus' day, they are removing the uncleanness of racism from the heart of the individual and they're putting it into something external so that if you abide by our truths, our rules, accept our beliefs, you can be woke, but otherwise you are unclean. There's no redemption from it. You can only accept it. And you must continually pay and apologize for it over and over and over and over again. And lest you think I am overstating their case, here's what Kendi says. I think. (laughs) He says, many critical race theorists and social scientists hold that racism is pervasive, systemic, and deeply ingrained. No white member of society is innocent. So every one of us in this room is guilty. This is so unbiblical. This is so damaging to the church. And yet the church at large is falling for it, hook, line, and sinker. So how is this being accepted by the church? How is CRT coming into the church? Well, number one, it's being adapted by church leaders. Uh, For instance, the president of Criswell College, named after the namesake, W.A. Criswell, which is a name that I think most of you in this name would be familiar with, most of you in this room, the great Southern Baptist preacher of last century who pastored First Baptist Dallas for 50 years. Criswell College, the president says, we have to address racism as a corporate problem. And then he says, the question is not, how do I fix systemic racism in America? But instead, in light of systemic racism's reality, what actions are on my part are right? So the president of Criswell College just assumes the tenets of CRT and says, what must we do to make it better, to make it right? Some of these, that's Criswell College, but let me give you some that are a little more close to home. I've already mentioned the one closest to us, and that is Resolution 9 from the Southern Baptist Convention in 2019, but there's more. There is widespread fear that it's being taught in our SBC seminaries, which means it's going to trickle down into the churches. Many conferences have had speakers who are promoting it and speaking out of their playbook. One of the most infamous examples is the former head of the IMB, where he got up and preached a sermon on Amos 5 and basically quoted D'Angelo pretty much the entire sermon, uh, pretty much gave all of her arguments at that conference. 
Our own SBC's president has spoken in ways that promote this ideology. He said, I know we need to take a deep look at our police system and structures and ask what we're missing. How are we missing the mark? If you're familiar from Sunday school and the definition of sin, what does hamartia mean? Missing the mark, right? These words are not chosen randomly. Matt Chandler put out a YouTube video about how he all how he grew up with the invisible air of white privilege all around him that he didn't see. And some statements that I believe, and I think maybe a lot of these are simply carelessly worded, but they're out there nonetheless. And several evangelical authors have stated that social justice is an issue of the gospel. They're elevating it to the gospel. And that really comes to the second part, and that is they're adapting it, but they're also using it as false accusations against the church. Probably the most troubling thing I'm seeing is that a church's faithfulness to God is no longer measured by the faithfulness of their teaching, no longer measured by the faithfulness of their teaching and preaching and their gospel, and they're acting in accordance with the scripture, but faithfulness in our church now is being measured by how multi-ethnic we are, And if we are not multi-ethnic, that means we are not faithful to God. That's what they're saying. Now, again, don't misunderstand me. I long for a day that Calvary Baptist Church is multi-ethnic, amen? I long for a day that every race is, is represented here. I long for a day that, that we have a heavenly preview that every nation, every tribe, every tongue is represented right here at Calvary Baptist Church. Beloved, the church of Jesus Christ is a multinational, multi-ethnic church, amen? amen? But not at the expense of truth. Not at the expense of biblical faithfulness. And that picture of the church from every nation, every tribe, every tongue is there precisely because they have come to the truth. Not because the truth of scripture has bowed down to the altar of sociology. And so we've got to be careful with this. And one of the most outrageous claims I have heard came from Sojourners Magazine. Uh, InterVarsity, you guys familiar with that group, right? They, they, put on a, they put on a collegiate conference where a lady named Michelle Higgins gave the speech and Sojourners uh, Magazine praised it. And here's what they said. Michelle Higgins exposed a central lie at work in the church and the lie is this. White people were created to rule and everyone else was created to be ruled. Beloved, that is a false accusation. That is a lie. I have been in the church since I was 15 years old. I was saved when I was 15. And I've been in the church since then. And I've never heard that said in a church. And if I did, I would leave I've heard racist comments made in churches and I left them because if you're a racist, you do not have the love of God in you. 
But beloved, that doesn't mean that we adapt to our culture. This is a lie. And they're saying that the gospel that is powerful enough to save your soul is not powerful enough to cover your racism. That's what they're saying. And that we've got to do more to cover our racism and pay for it. That's what they're saying. Jesus, it's leading Christians astray from the simplicity and pure devotion to Christ. It's not enough to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. We've got to do more. We've, there's got to be actions. There's got to be this and that. And unless you're doing those things, it proves that you don't love God. And how many Christians this morning are sitting in churches listening to preachers who have bought this and they are feeling false guilt over something that the Bible does not call sin. They're being placed in bondage. They're being put into unbiblical chains and placed in unbiblical boxes. Social justice says that the only remedy is that we must all in here admit that we are racist. Regardless, you may have never had a racist thought in your life, but they say that every one of us in here must admit we're a racist. And that's what Christian leaders are saying today. Southern Baptist Christian leaders. I didn't believe this one until I heard it. When the bar shooting happened in Florida, remember that? I think it was 2016. When that shooting happened, and I'm, and I'm gonna tell you the name of the church. I'm not doing this to point fingers or anything. I'm just, you know, the information's out there. First Baptist Church in Orlando had a prayer vigil for the victims. I don't have a problem with that. That was fine. But they had a host of speakers come through speaking at the pulpit. The pastor himself mourned David Youth, who, by the way, is from Arkansas. The pastor himself mourned about his own complicity in the shooting, even though he was nowhere near it at the time it happened. He mourned of his complicity. He mourned of his, uh, of his um, responsibility for it. But that wasn't the worst part. Then another Baptist pastor got up at a Southern Baptist church, First Baptist Church, Orlando. This is a flagship church of the SBC. And he read the passage in First Peter where it says that the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now, everyone in here knows who that's talking about, don't you? Who's it talking about? Do you wanna know who he said is the chief cornerstone of the community of the church? the LGBT community. That was in a Southern Baptist church, my friends, by a Baptist pastor. Blasphemy. Blasphemy. Why are they saying stuff like that? Because they bought this. Hook, line, and sinker. Do you see why I'm addressing it? Do you see the problem? I hope you do. So how does the Bible address this tenet? 
Just very quickly. Number one. First off, we need to be fair. The scripture does speak about people in binaries. It does, okay? Uh, probably more, most, the one that comes to your head almost immediately is Jew and Gentile, right? So it speaks in that. Uh, men and women even distinguishes between old women and young women. Young, old women are to teach young women. Old men are to teach young men. Uh, you know, the, the scriptural authorization for youth ministry and such. Goats and sheep in Adam, in Christ. You know, it does speak in these kinds of terms, okay? But here's what we need to understand is that the scriptures give a balanced view of oppression versus personal responsibility, the scriptures acknowledge, and, and uh, I think I jumped the gun here, but, uh, but the scriptures acknowledge a balance between oppression and responsibility. Beloved, biblical Christians ought to care about those who are oppressed. Nobody's saying that. Nobody's saying that we shouldn't. But the scriptures give a balanced view of that. There are multiple warnings for the rich not to oppress the poor. For the law is filled with warnings about not withholding fair wages. Compensate generously and care for the poor among you. The Bible is filled with those kinds of instructions. The New Testament carries out these instructions as well. You cannot read the Bible honestly and think that God does not care about the oppressed. We're not denying that. But there are just as many warnings about personal responsibility. For instance, Proverbs chapter 10, verse one, excuse me, verse four says, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. In other words, if you are lazy, expect to be poor. Amen. That's how it works. Uh, I can't remember. I got a few of them up here. So just go to the next one. Uh, the hand of the diligent will rule while the slothful will be put to forced labor. So many more we could say. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 23. In all labor, there is profit, but mere talk leads to poverty. Ever meet someone who's got the world figured out? <clears throat> Boy, they can talk about it all the time, can't they? about how bad their boss is and how much they would do it better, but they're lazy. And mere talk leads to poverty, doesn't it? Mere talk. The scripture acknowledges that those who are oppressed can be oppressed unfairly, but the scriptures also address personal responsibility, which is not something, remember what we said, CRT denies all individuality whatsoever. So personal responsibility is not something they're interested in. In fact, when they talk about equal opportunity, we all believe in equal opportunity, right? But what are we talking about? We're talking about equal opportunity. What are they talking about? They're talking about equal equity. In other words, not a fair opportunity for all, but equal result, which the only way you can get that is through redistribution. That's the only way you can theoretically do that. And by the way, Scripture also acknowledges that those who are oppressed can oppress the oppressors. Scripture acknowledges that. And that can happen, can't it? Of course it can. That is, that is unheard of in social justice. 
So there's that. Number two, our relationship to sin. And, and Ezekiel 18 is a, is a passage that you should be very familiar with in this climate. Ezekiel chapter 18, I won't read it all because I'm pretty much out of time. But in verses one and two, the Israelites are in Babylon. They are complaining. And they're, and they're saying this. They're saying that uh, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, the children are complaining. Our parents are the reason why we're here. It's their fault. They sinned and God's punishing us. Boy, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? And God says, don't say that proverb. Don't talk about that. He says in verse four, behold, all souls are mine and the soul of the father as well as the soul of the son. The soul who sins will die. God does not hold you accountable for the sins of your fathers, but he holds you accountable for your own sins and whether you participate in them or not. The soul that sins shall die. In fact, look at verse 14. I think I have this on the board. Ezekiel 18, 14. He says, the person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor the father bear the punishment for the son. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. Beloved, it is most likely true of all of us in this room that somewhere in our ancestry, there were slaveholders. More than likely. You do not have to keep apologizing for that. Amen? God doesn't, and, and every generation has a sin they're blind to that the next generations kind of scratch their head and think, what were they thinking, you know? But you're not accountable for it. The soul that sins shall die. God holds the individual responsible. God repudiates this idea. He says as much in verses 21, 22. And it also shows that contrary to the prophetess Robin D'Angelo, we do not carry our racial histories with us. You are not the representative of every white person who's ever lived in America for the last 400 years. You're just not. That is a responsibility you cannot bear. We'll say more about that in a minute. But number three, the scriptures command justice. The scriptures do command justice. Read the book of Proverbs. The scriptures do warn about justice. You cannot read the scriptures and think that God doesn't care whether we practice justice. But beloved, practicing justice is the fruit of salvation. It is the outworking of salvation. It is not the gospel. You don't practice justice to be saved. You practice justice because you are saved. Amen? And we talk about that. We, we tell, we, we fight back on those who are saying this and they say, oh, you're just being simplistic. That, you know, saying that the gospel is the answer, that's just too simple. We need these complex views of race from CRT to help us out. You're just, you're just too simple. Well, we're in good company because Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, 
Beloved, if you think the word of the cross is too simple, it's because you are perishing or you have bought into a perishing idea. The word of the cross is powerful. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those who are being saved, both the power and the wisdom of God. That's what we preach here. True biblical justice is the outworking of the gospel. It is the fruit of the gospel. And Christ is the one who breaks down the walls and barriers of division. He is the one who brings together former enemies. And he's pretty good at it. You say, what do you mean? Because every one of you in this room before you were saved were an enemy of God. And he brought you to himself. God is pretty good at taking those who are enemies, redeeming them from their sin, adopting them as his child, giving them a future and a hope and building a church at his table who are made, he's pretty good at taking those who hate God, who are his enemies and offering them a place at his table, now beloved of God, now in union with Christ, now we have a hope, now we have a future, now we have a security, now we have everything we need in life and godliness and it did not come from Karl Marx, critical race theory, Robin D'Angelo, Kendi, Abraham Kendi, or any of these others. It comes from Jesus Christ, and there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. He does not need any help from Karl Marx. And he's not too interested in the opinions of these others. You want to see the outworking of the gospel? Here it is, Galatians chapter three, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither saved for free. There is neither male or female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Beloved, you want to see the breakdown of divisions? Come to Christ. Be saved because he's the only one who can truly do it. Do you desire to be reconciled with your neighbor? First, be reconciled with God. I know this is not an evangelistic sermon this morning. In fact, some of you may be offended by some of the things I've said. But beloved, this is a Trojan horse. This is not good. But every single one of us was an enemy of God. And he brought us to himself He redeemed us from our sin. He made us fit for heaven. He adopted us as his child. He united us to Christ. And now our future is set with him. And if he can do that, then he can do it for you. If you're here this morning and you're not reconciled to Christ, make no mistake, you are his enemy. but he has reached out to you in love and he has invited you to himself. And he begs you to come. He begs for you. He mourns for you to come. Be reconciled to God and you will be saved. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your savior, that's the path to true justice. 
Because true justice was served on the cross on your behalf. You don't want justice, brother, sister. You want mercy. And God is offering it to you. Would you come and find out how you can have it? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. I know that I have spoken longer. I know that these are hard ideas. I recognize that it's probably not the most exciting subject. But Lord, that this is a danger in the church. And just like the apostles, just like the prophets of old, Father, sometimes we have to fight off the wolves. And I fear for the church today. I fear for what is happening, for the ideas that are coming in. And the last thing I want is, should you choose to take me in the next week or so, and Calvary must find a new pastor, the last thing I want is for that pastor to bring these ideas in. I want our church to be equipped. I want them to be secure. I want them to understand that your word is sufficient and that's all we need. So I pray, Lord, if there's one here this morning that is so busy chasing after every wind and every, every fad of doctrine that's coming out, Lord, that they would come to maturity, that they would come to Christ before it's everlasting too late. It is in your name we pray, amen. Let's stand together and sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full to his wonderful face, and the things of the world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's just sing one verse of this to, uh, to end this morning.